a lot of these people just want to burn the whole thing down. They don't want a government that spends that much money anyway. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, January 11th. The Kevin McCarthy speakership drama is over for now. But today, Julia Yaffe is here to discuss a real-world consequence of Republicans taking control of the House, the threat of some members to cut defense spending and reduce American financial commitments to Ukraine. Will Speaker McCarthy bow to the demands of the right and slash Pentagon funding, or will the military-industrial complex chug on as usual? Julia has the answers. And later, Bill Cohan joins Ben Landy to discuss bonus season on Wall Street, how a downturn in corporate earnings and Elon Musk's Twitter fiasco could ricochet through equities, the debt markets, and more. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe. How are you, Julia? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Did you spend all of last week watching Kevin McCarthy try to become Speaker of the House? I totally watched. Beyond the drama uh, of <laughs> his ascension to Speaker of the House, we'll see how long it lasts, by the way. This does have implications for governing and making policy. And perhaps in the case of the sure House, stopping policy. One of the things Kevin McCarthy said from the podium after the 15th vote, when he finally got up there and got the gavel, was promising what House Republicans promised during the midterms, which was to be a check and balance on the Biden administration. But he also vowed to wield the power of the purse. Uh, and this is what I want to talk to you about because this is this is your lane. How is that going to affect both our commitments to the Ukraine, but also just defense spending in general? Well, it affects it tremendously, potentially. That's the short answer. The longer answer is that this is a tremendously complicated process of how bills get to the floor, how they get written, how these appropriations get appropriated. To boil it all down, 
the holdouts, the Taliban 20, they've demanded that we cut spending on Ukraine aid, right? They don't want to they want to stop sending blank checks to Ukraine, though I think most of us who have followed this know that we have not been sending blank checks to Ukraine. They want to break out a lot of this spending so that it's voted on separately so that you don't get, for example, what just happened with the omnibus bill, which was this giant, giant spending bill with a lot of all this other stuff tucked into it, but you're voting for the whole thing. Like you Mm -hmm. can't be like, well, I approve of 88% of it, but I don't want this kind of thing riding along its coattails. Mm -hmm. They don't want that to happen anymore. They want it to be broken out and voted on separately. And what complicates it is we actually don't, we don't know the details of what he agreed on and what he conceded to these members of Congress. And we don't know what's going to pass the kind of the rules vote. The other part of the conference still has to approve it. So, so much of it is still up in the air, just like procedurally. Mm -hmm. And then... There's the aspect that this is still a tiny minority of the House Republican conference. Most of them, most Republicans in the House are very hawkish Mm -hmm. on defense spending. And that's true also on the Senate side. So, for example, this group of 20 were very upset that the U.S. increased its defense spending by $75 billion for this fiscal year, for the coming fiscal year. And they want to return defense spending to 2022 levels, which would be a cut effectively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the reason that it went up by $75 billion, that was more than what the Biden administration had even asked for. And that was because Republicans in the Senate were like, we want more defense spending. That Mm -hmm. was a concession to other Republicans. So it's going to be a shit show. So, I mean, you made this point, but everyone saw the video during, I think, the 14th vote of Mike Rogers from Alabama going over to yell at Matt Gates and tell him to get in, get in line and he had to be pulled away from somebody. Mike Rogers is going to be the incoming chairman of the Armed Services Committee. Mm-hmm. Like he is very critical of proposed defense cut. And then Matt Gates, remember Matt Gates there was there was a moment there somewhere between I think like the 4th and 5th vote mm-hmm. uh, where there was talk that Matt Gates was trying to get onto the Armed Services committee you know and it was just so that he could also exercise that power of the purse string so you made this point on our last podcast together where you were talking about josh hawley skipping Zelensky's speech to congress and he was sort of planting a flag on we're giving too much money away to this war and there's not enough accountability you know, and at the same time, these are a lot of the same Republicans who have, quote unquote, America first and have lamented the death of manufacturing in this country. And it's like, well, you know, Matt Gates, um, not that Florida necessarily is a huge manufacturing hub, but there are plenty of Republican states where more defense spending means more manufacturing and more jobs. And so, like, I'm curious to see what it, someone like Matt Gates would say or do if he got on armed services or appropriations or something like that. Well, it's funny you mention that because so uh, and I've heard this from Republicans that they're like, even Republicans who disagree, you know, the people who are 
They would like America to keep playing a more active muscular role abroad, who vehemently disagree with this group of 20. Mm -hmm. They were like, look, that argument about jobs, manufacturing jobs is not going to fly with these guys, right? A, you sound like a too clever by half asshole to them by making that argument. And two, it just doesn't feel right to them on a gut level, which is like, it's not about jobs. It's not about defense spending. It's A, we're just spending too much money, period. And we shouldn't be doing stuff over there. Mm -hmm. We should be focusing on our own border, on our own security. And to these people, it just doesn't make sense that our security has anything to do with what's happening super far away in a country that most Americans can't find on a map. And to wit, our fabulous colleague, Tina Nguyen, um, said to me today, actually, that one of her sources in MAGA world got pissy with her for my piece and said exactly that, that it's not about pork and jobs and whatever, like defense contractor spending that these people can bring back home to their districts. It's about spending money over there and just spending money, period. They just, you know... A lot of these people just want to burn the whole thing down. They don't want a government that spends that much money anyway. It's an easy thing for drain the swamp slash Washington mm-hmm. is broken folks to grab onto. We got to cut the spending. And our grandchildren, great grandchildren will be paying down this debt, blah, mm. blah, blah. How much money has been committed to Ukraine so far? And how much have we promised that hasn't been delivered yet like how much how, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about here so i believe at this point it's over a hundred billion dollars that mm-hmm. has been committed this is where it gets complicated some of it has been sent over to ukraine as grants that they can then use to go shopping in the u.s mm-hmm. for american-made weapons and american-made systems some of it is what is called drawdown authority This was in a standalone bill. In May, Mm -hmm. Congress upped the limit for the Biden administration from 100 million to, I want to say, 11 billion, Hmm. and said, basically, that's how much money you, the White House, have, and you can kind of spend down from that. Some of the money, actually a lot of the money that Congress is allocating is money that's going to replenish Department of Defense stocks Hmm. or the Biden administration has sent over to Ukraine. So in peacetime, you don't just have factories just making tons and tons of javelins and patriots and stingers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's like a certain amount that's made and a certain amount sitting around and The Pentagon has them for various contingency plans and also states that are clients of ours get in line and buy stuff from these Mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. When something like this comes along and reshuffles the deck, the president can say like, okay, don't worry about it. We're just going to send you a bunch of stuff that we have. And then the Pentagon has to go to Lockheed Martin, for example, and say like, hey, we just sent over, let's say, 100 javelins. That's, mm-hmm. that's not the real number, obviously. But like, we just sent, let's say, 1,000 javelins to Ukraine. We need to restock our javelin supply. Can you make us another 1,000 javelins? Mm-hmm. So a lot of that money that Congress is allocating is actually just going to the Pentagon, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. 
Yes. Okay. And we should note, by the way, that it's not just Republicans who have raised these concerns in Congress. Like totally. AOC voted against the omnibus, both because of funding for ICE, but also because of it's another like blank check increase for defense spending, which is something the far left has always been against. But there's a difference there. I think that I think the difference is on the left, on the progressive side, they would rather use this money for, say, social spending, like universal mm-hmm. pre-K or family leave. Mm-hmm. And they would like the same questions asked of the defense spending that's asked of social spending, which is how are we going to pay for this? Like, where's this mm-hmm. money coming from? Mm-hmm. And let's, you know, squeeze this and squeeze that and tax this and tax that and, and make this kind of financially feasible. O- on the far right, you have people saying, like, the government shouldn't be spending this money at all. They shouldn't spend it on foreign intervention. They shouldn't mm. spend it on social spending. They shouldn't be spending it, period. They shouldn't be spending it. I mean, these are the same people who want to gut the IRS, right? The government shouldn't be spending money on that either, right? There, It's like a more fundamentally kind of anarchistic approach. Mm-hmm. So just to, just to tie it up here, it feels like knowing... My hunch is that McCarthy will ultimately take the side of Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans and Raytheon and Boeing and like whoever else. Yeah, it's just like he will. He like I just it just doesn't feel like he is going to bow once again to the demands of the you know nineteen or twenty people who were opposing. You don't think they'll just eat him? No, but it's just the flip side of that is it's just going to validate as fraudulent as some of their arguments were everything that Matt Gates and Paul Gosar and Lauren Boebert were saying about Kevin McCarthy. He's part of the swamp. He's part of the K Street lobbyist crowd. He just wants to give the military and contractors a blank check and he's not looking out for the people like the whole like the, but he is. the, 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 the election mean, to speaker. In other words, did, did, is not going to paper over these divisions as totally. silly as some of them are. Well, that's the thing is that I think that uh, their criticism of Kevin McCarthy was fundamentally right, that this man will do anything. He is like a cartoon version of a politician. He will say anything, do anything, tell you he believes anything to get more power, to get that one office he's always wanted. And he believes in nothing, Lebowski, you know? And (laughs) I think... Yes, their criticism was fundamentally right. What I see happening is that he is going to stretch so far to try to connect these two unconnectable sides of the divide and rip apart in the process. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he can survive that. I think this is just like, just to mix metaphors, I think he's just temporarily in remission. <laughs> I think... My other di- my other diagnosis from afar <laughs> of McCarthy is why is this guy suffering through all of these votes? He's embarrassing himself on national television. Like, yes, he will do anything to be speaker. I actually do think the everyone from Kevin McCarthy to Dan Crenshaw, like I think they had to send a message to the say no to everything crowd and the the holdouts that like, we're not going to bow to your demands. I think they had to do that at some point. But I think that Kevin McCarthy so desperate to be speaker that he was happy to be speaker for like 
a couple months just so he can have it on his resume. Totally. Like Totally. I think he's totally. like, I don't think he'll be like Liz Truss, like, and he'll be around for a few weeks and go away. But I do think that like, as long as he got there and like could point to the Speaker yeah. of the House office above him and maybe he's in there. Look, maybe he's there for the next two years. Maybe he's in there for like six months and then he gets like shit canned by the caucus. I think he'd be okay with that because he just yeah, yeah, got he gets across it. the finish line and it could put it on his resume and then he can do go do whatever he wants. Totally. He got he checked that box. You know, it'll be like Kevin McCarthy, comma, former speaker of the house, comma. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Uh-huh. And you know that's like uh, nagged at him ever since like what was it like 2015 or whatever when he was almost there and he had the Benghazi mm-hmm, flub mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then he's like shit I got to get back there. Anyway, that's what I think. God. <laughs> Thank God. you for briefing me Dream on defense big, spending. Everyone. <laughs> Dream, Dream big, everyone. Dream big. You too can be something <laughs> for a few months um, as long as you're willing to debase yourself on on national television. Julia, thank you so much for your insight as always. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, and we're very grateful to have with us Bill Cohan on the program. Hey, Bill. Hey, Ben. Uh, glad to be here. I wanted to chat with you a little bit about corporate earnings season, which kicks off this week. But I'm also curious what these quarterly reports mean inside Wall Street. You worked at various banks on M&A for 17 years. I assume there's plenty of tension within the banks sort of as these numbers are rolling out because they're an indicator of Wall Street's performance too, which helps determine your bonus. But presumably you have a sense of, of the company's guidance before those numbers come out, right? Well, everything on, on Wall Street uh, is geared towards the bonus. Uh, even though the numbers can get large, uh, there's a lot of bonus envy when they you know, get distributed and the information uh, inevitably starts leaking out. Now, I think it's safe to say that you know 2021 was one of those great years when it came to Wall Street bonuses. Uh, 2022 is going to be significantly less robust, especially for the investment bankers. Uh, It's quite possible that traders might do almost as well as they did in 2021, if perhaps even better than they did in 2021. But their bonuses have been quasi-depressed for a while anyway. So in short, uh, you know, we're in that silly season now when these banks report uh, their earnings this uh, for 2022, uh, this coming uh, week and next week. Uh, you know, you saw Jeffrey's already released its earnings, uh, smaller investment bank, you know, not so great, and that will affect their bonuses. So bonuses will be down. Investment bankers will be upset, maybe a few whines traders probably a little bit happier than their investment banking brethren. Yeah, I mean, not just smaller bonuses. I mean, also, um, analysts expect companies in S&P to report their first year-over-year decline in quarterly earnings since the height of the COVID era in 2020. So, um, I mean, not just like bonuses getting smaller, but also there's a lot of layoffs planned. Goldman Sachs says they are going to exit about 3,000 people, I believe, about a third of those cuts are going to be in the trading and banking units. Is that mostly a function of the slowing deal-making activity that you were describing? I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a combination of absolutely this the fact that 2022 was a much slower deal-making environment. Again, maybe trading was 
you know, was actually better than it had been, but investment banking was not. And and the fact that, look, I mean, w- Goldman's employee workforce is now, what, in, in the mid-40,000s? Uh, a few years ago, it was in the mid-30,000s. So they've been hiring a bunch of people. And inevitably, when you get to be the size that Goldman is now, uh, it gets harder and harder to, you know, sort of make sure you're hiring, you know, the best and the brightest every time. And sometimes people don't work out. And other times, you know, especially when you've had a situation uh, like we had uh, during the pandemic, when people were working from home, and they got to liking working from home, and they didn't, you know, want to be told they have to come back to the office. So there's probably some disgruntled uh, employees, there'll be people who are getting you know smaller bonuses than they think they deserve or want they'll be disgruntled so it's a combination of doing what jack welch used to do at ge which is you know uh, every year call the bottom 10 percent of the workforce which i think you know is uh somewhat darwinian uh but i think frankly is um healthy because you don't want the workforce getting complacent, you don't want them taking things for granted, you don't want uh, the you know bad seeds uh, infecting the rest of the workforce. So it's it sounds harsh, and the media loves to report on it, especially at Goldman. Uh, but it's probably uh, you know a healthy thing for them to do, and it's been going on forever, so it's nothing new. You wrote the other day that you expect Twitter and Tesla also to weigh on Wall Street this quarter, in particular, both in terms of the debt that the banks are going to have to mark down in Twitter, and then also just the collapse of Tesla's stock, which is not an entirely unrelated phenomenon. That makes up a pretty decent percentage of the NASDAQ 100. I have to imagine that both of those Elon Musk companies are sort of impinging on Wall Street's enthusiasm these days. Look, some of Wall Street banks, like uh, you know Goldman and J.B. Morgan Chase, uh, they they represented the Twitter board, uh, and I think Goldman made uh, like you know eighty million dollars uh, for its advice uh, in selling Twitter to Elon and J.P. Morgan Chase made like fifty million. I mean that was probably the easiest money they ever made because you know after Elon came in with his over the top offer that was unsolicited that was extremely rich. Uh, even though the board probably didn't want to sell the company uh, for Goldman and J.P. Morgan uh, Chase, it was the you know easiest fairness opinion they've ever given, and they got incredibly well re- rewarded for that. So that's great. It's great that they are the interstitial men uh, in that situation. They got extremely well compensated. On the other side of the equation, you have the banks who who are representing and working with Elon who thought they were going to get like a huge bonanza, even even more. And uh, as a consequence of the Elon Musk lunacy, they are going to take it on the chin and have taken it on the chin. And I've been uh, hoping and expecting that when they, uh, of course, they may not uh, release their earnings, JP uh, Morgan Stanley and, and Bank of America and Barclays in particular, when they release their earnings, uh, Morgan Stanley and B of A, you know, in the next week or so, you know, we're going to finally find out uh, where they've marked this Twitter debt that the senior secured Twitter debt that uh, they were the lead underwriters on this $13 billion of 
of senior secure Twitter debt that they have not been uh, wanting to syndicate because they didn't want to take their markdowns in the final quarter of last year. Now, maybe they were forced by the Fed to write them down, uh, and that's what we're going to wait to see when they uh, release their earnings. And and that'll tell you just how bad it is for these banks who thought they were going to have a bonanza uh, working for Elon Musk and instead are going to have huge uh, losses as a result of that debt. I mean, I've heard, you know, basically it's marked at 50 cents on the dollar now. And uh, that means the loss for these banks is six and a half billion dollars. And I suspect that the Fed has uh, forced them to take that markdown and we they're going to have to share that markdown with their investors, you know, when they release their earnings or when they actually release their 10K, which will be later on. So that will be an indication of how bad the leveraged finance market is, how bad the write-offs are going to be, including not only Twitter, but Citrix, uh, Nielsen, Tenneco, other deals in the pipeline. It's really rough out there, and there are going to be big losses related to these uh, leveraged finance deals. And if you think about it, if the debt of Twitter is only worth 50 cents on the dollar, uh, Ben, that means that the equity of Twitter, uh, the $31 billion of equity that Elon and his buddies put in to buy the company, is basically worthless, except for, you know, some small amount of, of option value that exists because maybe Elon Musk will pull a miracle out of this or pull a rabbit out of his hat. It just won't descend into nothingness or further disaster. But if the debt is only worth 50 cents, the senior secure debt of the company is only worth 50 cents on the dollar, then the equity is worth zero or close to zero, which is pretty astounding after two months of ownership. Yeah, I suppose anything is possible. And of course, um, you know, we, we might see other big financial moves from Elon this year, whether he'll want to spin out Starlink and take that public now that he's so hard up on cash. But um, Bill, we'll be following this storyline closely. Uh, obviously, some rough times ahead for Wall Street this week, but we'll see how it all plays out. Thanks as always for stopping by. Hey, thank you for having me, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 